Nicolone, welcome to the Healthcare Solutions Project, the podcast where we get to know health industry innovators who are working to improve cost, quality, and health outcomes and enhance patient and clinician satisfaction. I'm Don Siemens, and today I'm joined on the show by a woman who has made it her business to help decrease costs, improve quality of care, and help doctors proactively care for their patients. Dominique Morgan. Dominique, welcome to the Healthcare Solutions Project. Yeah, thank you for having me, Don. Appreciate it. Dominique is a vice president at Village MD and the company's general manager of its operations in the state of Michigan. She has more than 15 years of experience in healthcare and focuses on creating simple solutions to complex issues in value-based care and population health management. Dominique, it's been a long time. It has. It has been a long time. Yes, but the beautiful thing of technology and pandemics is that people. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So we were working on a project together when we first met, and uh, it was related to value-based care and population health management, and those terms were just beginning to buzz. And from my perspective, from where I was sitting, you were hitting your stride as a healthcare executive. You're an expert in value-based care. You've been consulting about this topic for a long time now. Describe how you carved out that position. Um, I would say it's probably something that found me more than I found it. Hmm. Um, and I, <laughs> calling me an expert is kind of, um, I, I, I'm learning every day and growing every day in, in this field that um, is evolving. So yeah. um, I think that's one, one of the reasons why I, I gravitated to to um, more of the innovative kind of models of care, um, alternative payment methodologies, that kind of thing is because that there's constant opportunity for growth hmm. um, and learning. Um, and it, and it, it's hard to call, be called an expert because it changes all the time. For sure. right? Yeah. Um, but I would say um, I'm, I'm my, my natural proclivity is to fit towards efficiency. Like um, I have a black belt in lean six Sigma and it, that's another thing that kind of found me as opposed to me finding it in mm. that um, I just, my brain works that way. And in terms of thinking about what's the most effective, most, um, whether it's cost or whether it's process, whether it's clinical time, that kind of thing, what's the most effective and efficient way of getting to the outcome. And um, that's really about, that's sort of the premise and the basis of value-based care. And so um, and it, it's also when I got into healthcare and I worked on the hospital side and I did had an amazing fellowship with um, Mercy Medical Center in Des Moines, Iowa, which mm. was at the, which was part of um, Catholic Health Initiatives, which now is common spirit mm. um, healthcare and lots mm-hmm. of transition there. Yeah, for sure. Um, what I was sitting in sort of all of the various um, different departments within the hospital system and kind of watching spending time with the payer negotiation folks and then spending time with the provider folks just really came to the understanding that there was an opportunity for us to align incentives in a way that was both best for the patient, best for the provider, and also best for the kind of bottom line. And I knew that's what I wanted to do. Hmm. So um, that's kind of why I got into that was, I didn't know it was value-based care at the time because it was the terminology didn't exist, mm-hmm. but I knew I wanted to work inside of systems and um, with organizations that had that focus, which actually is how I landed at Kaiser mm. because that's very much the alignment there. 
Yeah, it definitely is. They've got a great reputation and in innovative, cost-saving type of care. So healthcare is a draw for a lot of people. Why was it a draw for you? Why did you decide to get into healthcare in general? Yeah, so um, I have two degrees, undergraduate degrees. One's in um, a science, biology, and the other one's in political science, a social science. And um, it became really apparent to me that I talk too much to be a doctor. My patients would never get out of my office. <laughs> <laughs> so, actually, I had a professor tell me that. <laughs> and I took it to heart. So um, I just like, I'm a systems person. And so, but I also wanted to do something that um, I wanted a career that, that was about impacting people in a positive way. Um, and I have parents who are attorneys who are lawyers. And I thought I was going to go to law. I actually got, got into law school and was headed to law school and worked for a law firm and mergers and acquisitions right around the dot-com era. And I hated it. Mm. Um, and it's not to say that lawyers are, are bad people. Matter of fact, most of my friends are lawyers. Mm. Um, a lot of people in my family are, are attorneys. Um, but, and there's a lot of ways that being an attorney, you can also do really great things. Sure. Um, I just knew it wasn't that wasn't, I needed, I wanted to be part of an industry and wanted to be part of something that played on my view, like my love of systems, my love of analytics, but also my love of people. And then I, I, I do, I get geek out over some of the clinical stuff. Like I love cardiologists think I'm crazy because I'll want to get in and talk about the etiology of left ventricular heart failure. And even though I didn't go to medical school. And so all of those things kind of merge together. And, um, when I, I went to University of Michigan for um, health management and policy in the School of Public Health, and though that's kind of where it was like light bulbs started to go off for me to say, oh, there's, there's you know there's opportunities to do a lot of things in healthcare without necessarily being a provider, but really helping support the system of how we deliver health, whether it's at you know at a population level or you know assist, like a public health kind of system level, or even within a healthcare delivery system. Um, there was just ways to take all of the things that I was really passionate about and that I really loved and that I hopefully, you know, was good at and was learning how to do better and apply it in a way that didn't mean that I had to go get a clinical degree. Hmm. And so that's how I landed in healthcare management. Love it. That's a great story. All right. So you're in value-based care and you mentioned that it's an arena that is constantly changing and it's also a term that's sometimes misunderstood. If you could define value for us in value-based care, and then tell us why you think it's become such a popular concept. Yeah. Um, I thought about this question a lot since when you sent it over, yeah. kind of like how to, how to sort of best typify it. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of different kind of formulas and that kind of thing, but I think it's really the, the one that I hear back to, and you hear it a lot, um, and I, I can't say that I coined it, but I have been using it since like 2010, 2011, mm. when when value-based care and sort of pop health outside of kind of a Kaiser arena was had started to become more of the thing because ACOs were starting to, to grow with the advent of the ACA. Mm -hmm. um, uh, really right care, right time, right patient, and I would say right resource. Like that getting that like value-based care is really about not it's not saying that people don't need hospitals because we do need hospitals it's not saying that we don't need um we don't need every kind of type of provider from tertiary care to quaternary care providers to primary care providers but it's about aligning those the services and the expertise that those providers bring 
in the right setting of care, whether that's at the hospital bed, whether that's in the community hospital, whether it's at in the home or in a post-acute setting like a, a skilled nursing facility with the patient with the patient with the right group of patients, right? At at we we need specialists to be able to and interventionalists and and folks who are at the sort of top of the pyramid from a from a um, cost and um, care delivery standpoint. And we need people sort of who you know, are the day-to-day day day folk who are helping keep people um, healthy, right? And mm. it's just about aligning those people with the right group of patients in the right care setting um, at the right point in time in the care trajectory. And I think we've had sort of an approach in this country pr- prior to kind of um, the advent of things like the ACA um, and other things that have basically said that, you know, it's it's we haven't done a very good job of aligning. We've kind of done a little bit of like, well, we if somebody wants to see a specialist, they should see a specialist. And mm-hmm. somebody, if somebody wants to see a specialist, they should see a specialist if they need if they need to see a specialist. Like it's it's really about, but the, we recognize that the the majority of care needs to be delivered in the community at the you know in in physician offices and at home. Um, and that's a shift. We had a very um, we had a very much, if you build it, they will come kind of approach to healthcare. Like right. healthcare is only delivered inside of the four walls. And I would say probably in the last five years, right, that that shift is has been much more pronounced where we realize that health care <laughs> is actually community and it is outside of the four walls. And a lot of what we do inside of the four walls is illness care. Mm. And both are important, but that, that we need to do a better job of doing what we do outside of the four walls so that what's inside of the four walls is really what needs to be there. And I think part of your question was, why now? Why is it so important now? Yeah. And, you know, the big question, the big piece of it is, is that for the kind of outcomes that we see as a country in terms of prevalence of diseases, um, clinical outcomes, like what people are dying of, that kind of thing, um, for how much we spend on healthcare, those two things just aren't aligned, right? Especially when we start to break it down outside of sort of the America, when we start to regionalize it geographically or even, um, or, or align it across different types of populations like population, people of color, people who have socioeconomic um, distress, people who live in urban areas versus people who live in rural areas versus people who live in suburban areas. Like when we start to look at the various cuts we just, we're not, we're missing the boat on how much we spend, mm. um, the, how much of that healthcare dollar is really tied to, to really good outcome. And so that's why aligning those things are, are really important for us to do now. So you've been doing this for more than a decade. How would you characterize yeah. value-based care today and maybe contrast that to what it was, let's say, five years ago? Yeah. Um, so I would say it's so funny because I saw that question and I was like, "Ooh, I have one word," and it's 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 been pretty consistent probably for the last twenty four months, which is um, value based care today is a still a little schizophrenic. <laughs> what I mean <laughs> by that is we are we are, but it, but versus five years ago where it was kind of like eh, like it was a, a little bit more like, oh, that's that thing in the future, or it's a, it's a fade. It's a, it's a phase. It's right. bad. Like it only happens in California in Boston and New York, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's coastal. It's not the rest of the country is still just going to go do what it needs to do. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I think what we're seeing now is we're seeing that it's not a fad. It's not a phase, especially, and I know you have some questions later on to talk, we can talk about the recent pandemic um, and how like that's brought a lot of things to light that have, um, that are really heavily tied to to value-based care um, initiatives. But um, I think the schizophrenia now is about we haven't fully aligned our payment systems, our clinical processes, um, our incentives, contracts, et cetera, and, and also resources, like where resources exist with how, where we want to go. And so we're still in this limbo state, right? Like where we're some, we still got feet in fee for service and we still have, when we're moving towards feet for into fee for value or even full kind of um, full capitation, full, full sort of global payment, that kind of thing. And care delivery organizations are just, you know, struggle as well as providers um, and even patients to a certain extent have, have a struggle related to kind of just where, like, how do I balance all of this? And like, what, what activities are tied to the things that I'm supposed to be doing versus what activities that are tied to the things that I'm used to doing Hmm. Um, and like how we balance those things. And so we're a little bit of, of, but what's good about the schizophrenia is, is that, it's not for lack of understanding that we have to move in this direction. I think that um, it's funny because prior to taking on this role, I was running a consulting group and spent a lot of time with folks across the country in various different um, healthcare delivery settings, as well as folks who kind of are ancillary to healthcare, who help support healthcare, like technology organizations. And there is some regionalization to where we are in terms of value-based care, where you did see like, you know, strong advances in kind of the ACO models and alternative payment methodologies on the coast. And then in sort of the middle of the country is coming along. And now I live in the middle of the country, right? I'm in Michigan. Mm -hmm. And um, really, I'm having very different conversations with hospital leaders in Michigan than I've had before related to kind of like, how do we partner around these value-based care strategies? Whereas before, I think they were they felt really strongly about kind of preserving their piece of the pie. And I don't mean that in a negative way, just meaning like we know the hospitals are expensive engines to run and they're necessary engines to run. And a lot of it was sort of defensive tactics, whereas now I think the offensive tactic, recognizing that value-based care is kind of here to stay is, okay, how do I, where do I find, how do I find my right place mm. so that I can be part of that right care, right time, right resource, right patient. So that was a long-winded answer, but it's in a, maybe a little complex, complex, but that's kind of where value-based care is. It's a little complex right now. It, it is. And I, I think when you're, you're thinking about it in terms of a provider, I think primary care physicians have a, an important place within the, the value-based care structure. I think that you get deeper into the specialties, you know, the secondary, the tertiary, the quaternary, that gets a little hazy. I think that's that's something that hasn't been well-defined yet. Would you agree? Yeah, I think um, we've had some, some really good um, attempts at trying to engage specialists. So, uh, you know, bundle, bundle payments is a really good example mm-hmm. of, of, of a, an approach that is like, well, this is the other end of the spectrum. And is this a way or mechanism for us to be able to engage specialists um, differently. And I will say this, I think that in general, um, specialists and in kind of the broad sense, 
there's some there's some that are actively engaged, like especially those primary care specialists, like your cardiologist, your endocrinologist, those type of people mm-hmm. who are sort of integral in helping manage folks with chronic conditions on an ongoing basis. Right. I think we we've we've sort of figured out how to not totally, but we're beginning to figure out ways to include them because they provide so much primary care to those populations mm-hmm. that are sort of far along in their chronic um, condition uh, trajectory. But yeah, when we start talking about like the orthopods and the anesthesiologists yeah. and, you know, the, the cardiothoracic surgeons and that kind of thing and where they fit into the value-based care engine, um, I, I do think that there's lots of opportunity for us to, to think differently. And, you know, one of the new models of care that, are, that will be coming out in, in 2021, the direct contracting entity, the DCE model from um, CMMI. Is potentially one one arena where we will begin to see specialists kind of be incentivized in a different way to to think differently about the care that they're 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 delivering to the populations and and aligning with primary care um, to be able to sort of right care right time right yeah. right you know right right resource right um, right patient so. Um, yeah, I think that there's definitely opportunity from from a specialist perspective, I also think that you know, this is me really talking me um, and um, that there's some opportunity for us to think differently about how we incent people as they go through medical school, right? Hmm. Um, And if we can create kind of a different kind of working environment for um, that, where primary care looks different than it has looked before. And we we see some models out there and certainly um, the organization I currently work for, Village, is is very committed to how we support primary care providers in, in this value-based care space, but just in general doing doing the right thing in terms of being able to be an accountable care provider um, across the board. And so what do those supports look like, like team, more team-based care, like, you know, how do we leverage technology? And COVID definitely fast-tracked that. And we're going to talk about that in a minute, <laughs> but um, COVID definitely fast-tracked um, the desire to 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 think about telehealth as a mechanism to better engage with people and you know it's definitely got it like anything that's relatively new and that has not necessarily been tried and tested it's got a lot of lot of things that we have to work out in terms of kinks but I don't think anybody would argue that we we can't put I think I read today like uh, on an article because they were because it's you know been obviously part of the conversation that's happening on the hill right now in terms of um, whether or not telehealth will continue to be, you know, um, supported from, from right. CMS and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You, you can't kind of put Pandora back in the box. As we think about kind of where, where healthcare is going, certainly the special where how specialists are, in, are integrated, um, but also kind of technology and, and different kind of mechanisms um, to support primary care, but also the connection between primary care and specialists. Um, I think it's going to be part of where we see lots of innovation. Hmm. All right. So, Dominique, you mentioned the COVID-19 pandemic and yeah. um, how it's interesting when you look at it from a, a 10,000 foot perspective, because it has healthcare providers focusing their energies on their sickest patients. At the beginning of the lockdown, rather than encouraging office visits, they had to focus on keeping most of their patients out of the office. And when visits yeah. were necessary... Providers use telehealth tools to maintain safe interactions. And so um, then when they realized that people with chronic conditions were avoiding care, they began to stratify patients by risk and 
start proactively engaging their riskiest patients. And to me, that sounds a lot like population health management. Mm-hmm. Are, are hospitals and health systems and group practices, are they seeing COVID-19 as a dry run for operating under value or should they be? Um, I think there are a lot who now who are at a place where um, a lot of the mechanisms that we've been trying to leverage to manage undervalue um, base care, they re- realize that those those things have to actually come into fruition. Um, a because um, they're useful, and and B they're definitely useful, and when you have to distance, right? When you have to. Um, ha- create access without having physical presence and physical access um, available. And so I think um, they're, they're definitely opening the door for, I think, folks who traditionally have been on the sort of other end of the spectrum where they're just, you know, where it's very much in person, it's very much kind of volume-based, that kind of thing, thinking differently about um, how they engage with, um, with folks. And so, um, I would say this though, it's funny because you sent over the question and I looked at it and I was like, you know, hospital health systems and group practices, I think like it, anybody in healthcare for the last 10 years has had to have some, like have some, some, there, there are very few folks who are outside of the realm of risk mm. in the sense that um, like it, it exists, it, like they, they manage risk in some way, shape, form or fashion and have been ever since Medicare has sort of put its foot in the, in it, whether you're on a tertiary care end of the spectrum or on a primary care the spe- end of the spectrum. Okay. I think what, what this has done is, is that um, you can passively, you can be passive about it or you can actively say, let me be proactive about setting up systems and having the right infrastructure in place to be able to manage pa- people differently. Hmm. And to your point, manage the be able to just manage a high risk population in a different way than you would say a lower risk population. And in this case, we're not talking about risk from a financial perspective. We're literally talking about people who are like have clinical health risk that right. is immediate. It has mm-hmm. to, have to be managed differently than people who um, don't. And so I think those are all um, really, really uh, important learnings. And I don't think we're done learning. I think there's there's going to be ongoing conversation by hospital and health system leaders over the next couple of months and in years, probably to figure out like what's their place in all of this. But I think you're right. There is something to be said about how they've had to, how they had to sort of shift their business. It's not all comers, right? The ED is not the, is not the feeder to the floors. And like, they right. had to be really selective about who and what and where got sort of in the doors because it had, um, you know, cascading effects in terms of their ability to operate effectively and, and safely. Well, that makes sense. Let's turn to what you're doing right now. Your employer, Village yeah. MD, they just signed a billion dollar agreement to build more than 500 full service primary care clinics adjacent to Walgreens stores. How does yeah. that impact what you're doing for the company in Michigan? Um, so first I'm going to caveat and say, um, I'm 10 weeks into my, my tenure with village. And Mm -hmm. so my comments are very much my own, um, and are going to reflect kind of my perspective on, on, on Michigan and my role in Michigan as it relates to kind of the growth and, um, what we're seeing at village. But 
I by no means represent the, the Village MD mm-hmm. um, line, so to speak, on 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 the whole Walgreens deal. Okay. Um, which is, but I will say this. I mean, I can say as as someone who um, is excited was excited to work for Village prior to um, learning about the Walgreens deal. I'm and even more excited about um, the the idea that um, this partnership is happening. And I will say it's funny because I've managed large provider groups in a variety of different places, Boston mm-hmm. being one of them. And yeah. I remember very early on in my tenure at Stewart Healthcare, getting a question from, or getting a provider to tell, say, say to me, you got to get my patients to stop going to CVS or mini clinics, <laughs> and that kind of thing. Like, we just need to not let them do that. And I was just kind of like, well, let's unpeel that onion a little bit. And why are people going to mini clinics? And why is that, why is that, becoming a thing and this was in in 2012 Mm -hmm. so you know eight years ago and now here i'm at an organization that kind of gets the fact that convenience is a factor like we've built healthcare and and whether it's primary care or, or other other ends of the spectrum there's been a lot of there's been a lot of focus on the system we build the system and we make it convenient for us and then you you as a patient figure it out right i think um I think what um, what I really love about um, this potential um, this potential the potential of this collaboration is that it, what it says to me as a consumer of healthcare is that you get the fact that that I got a busy life and healthcare managing my health and my kids' health and you know my partner's health and whoever's health whoever my dad's health like all of those things. Um, are part of my day-to-day it's not all of my day-to-day and like if you to the extent that you can make a lot of things like where I get where I have to pick up prescriptions and where I may have to get milk and somebody needs deodorant and (laughs) you know all and and also my provider is sort of available and has that kind of that kind of sense of consume being consumer friendly I think those are all like the right things regard like and, I, and I'm not saying that as a village employee as much as I'm saying that as a working mom who's also a daughter who also has you know who has a re- large responsibility of to taking care of a lot of different people yeah. and convenience is a huge factor because I got a lot of other things to do in my day so you asked about how it impl- what the impact is for Michigan and I will say um I think it, what it what it means for me is that I, the work that I came in here to do I got it I, I gotta double down and really do and that's really about um, the the village MD in Michigan is is relatively young. We're we're a little over a year old, and I'm a little a little like I said, ten weeks into to my role, and my my call to action has been very much um, to to build the model, um, get get the teams up and running, and and engage with as many providers as we can in the marketplace, um, as as this is a kind of resource for them to be able to participate in value based care in a way that also affords them autonomy as um as a provider group and I, that call to action is still very much the same um and and the really cool thing about this partnership is that it it just says that we have some additional resources potentially and some ability to think of think broadly about kind of that footprint and how we grow in the state of michigan um leveraging this 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 model of, of walgreens along with primary care clinics so part of the promise of this Village MD and Walgreens agreement is to build some of those clinics in underserved areas. And I would imagine that would include some urban areas in your state. 
Um, potentially down the line. Um, it's so funny because between my staff, people I know, the providers I work with, and random people on the street who who like or random people out on like social media land, mm-hmm. I guess I've gotten a ton of questions. And I don't even know if it's been a week since we've announced this. I think it's been about a week. Yeah. Um, and um, I I can honestly say that I I I, I know. I don't have any idea where we're going to, where these are going in terms of um, in the state of Michigan and, and when is certainly um, also part of on the, on the radar screen, but definitely um, in general, there's a, before even Walgreens, there was a broad commitment by leadership. And it's one of the reasons why I joined village um, or the village organization just Broad, like understanding that the part of the point of the model, right, is to to be able to create access to um, primary care services because we we know that when people have that connection with the primary care provider, and more importantly, the primary care provider and the team, um, we have better health health outcomes, right? Mm-hmm. And so certainly, um, as we look at the state and look at where there's growth opportunity um, in Michigan, that'll involve a whole lot of different areas. And Michigan's a really interesting state because you have both like heavily urban areas, but also you've got heavily rural areas. Like if you start to go North, like, you know, like you places where when you start to think about the number of people to the number of doctors available and types of providers available and where the closest hospitals are starts to look very differently. Right. And so, I think there's an there's a sort of awesome opportunity in Michigan to really to really um, leverage this model to 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 treat people where there's need to like to create opportunity for access to primary care where there's need. Mm. I think it's a good segue to my next question, which is related to value based care and and where there is a need. What can value based yeah. care do to improve the health of people living in areas like inner city neighborhoods of Detroit? Yeah. Um, so I think there's a growing opportunity. So one of the things that I love about pop health and, and, um, changing the incentives to be more accountable for the sort of global health outcomes of a population is that it means that you have to start having conversations about things that are not healthcare, but are Mm -hmm. health related. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the buzzword now is social determinants of health. Right. What's so funny is, is that coming out of the school of public health at the university of Michigan and having so many great leaders who are in the, on the public health side of sort of the healthcare delivery spectrum, like for years, decades, you know, have been saying that here's a need, here's a need, here's a need. And um, on the healthcare delivery side, the incentive model wasn't really there to say here, here's how we partner. And it's not to say that hospitals and healthcare systems and even provider groups haven't done their part in, in participating kind of community-based care and that kind of thing for sure. But um, we just didn't, the, there wasn't sort of the alignment from an incentive perspective to say, let's look at whether or not there are communities that have food deserts. And mm-hmm. let's look at communities that may have housing that's not you know, good housing for you know, things like people with, with pulmonary kind of challenges like right. asthma. Yeah. Let's look at transportation as a, as a me as a way of how people kind of manage their health care and what value-based care does is it affords it affords and creates that the opportunity to both ask the question but also to come up with some creative solutions to help answer it and then also potentially some really cool partnerships like i'm 
you know, 10 weeks in, I'm only one week in the state of Michigan. <laughs> um, but definitely looking forward to continuing the conversation with a lot of the healthcare leaders here, but also a lot of the public health leaders here, like Denise Fair, who who is the um, public health officer for this, the city of Detroit. And she's been in the news a lot because they just have done such a phenomenal job in response to COVID. Hmm. Um, and in terms of, and yeah, in terms of what they stood up in a very, very short amount of time and how they really stymied um, a lot of the, of the pandemic's growth in the city of Detroit and, and how they're managing it now. And I think um, that's a testament to, to, um, to you know, Denise's kind of forethought and, and the team that she works with and that kind of thing, and also the partnerships that she made, but also a huge opportunity for us, um, for for Village, but also a huge opportunity, I think, just in for healthcare delivery folks, folks who are in that space in southeastern Michigan to to really think about okay, where where their opportunities to partner um, outside of a pandemic to kind of drive other things like diabetic care and you know asthma care, COPD, heart failure, that kind of thing. Hmm. Uh, it, it's impressive that she was able to do what she's done in Detroit, seeing that you know what we're seeing in in terms of outbreaks, the underserved areas, inner city neighborhoods are, are getting hit pretty hard. Yeah, yeah. So it's that kind of innovation and that kind of kind of commitment to community that. Um, made me really excited and interested to to move back here hmm. to Michigan and 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 be part of that change and part of the growth that we're seeing here. I love that you want to be part of that change. I think that uh, that's been a hallmark of your career. It sounds like from the the moment that you started with Kaiser and uh, and maybe even before when you were in Iowa. Um, healthcare is it's a great. Uh, Great industry to work in, but it's fraught with with problems. What do you think it will take to heal the healthcare system in this country? Yeah, um, <clears throat> I think we just have to we have to adjust. <laughs> there's no just. Um, I think <laughs> there's a lot of work that we have to do to continue to um, align incentives. Um, I'm finding like it's funny. I. I teenagers and or a teenager and a preteen and I'm always telling them I don't I don't I'm I don't care if I'm right I don't care if you're right I care if it's right and I think that um the where we have to get to in healthcare is a place where what we care about is the it being right and not about who did it (laughs) or or like who is right kind of thing but like keeping that focus on the common goal and then aligning are not just our incentives, but aligning how we how we get how we get to that goal so it makes sense. Like I, I've a fair couple of family members who are you know recent medical school grads, and you know they struggled a lot with where what what where they ended up in terms of which specialty they ended up with because they had to really think hard about how they were going to pay for the, all the student loans they had to take out to be providers. Like, right. is there a way for us to deal with that end of the spectrum? Mm. Because then it's really, it makes it a lot easier to justify why we pay primary care, what we pay if primary care doctors aren't paying off 250, $400,000 worth of student loans, just become a doctor. Like, mm. and similarly, like our, how are we incenting people who may be interested in healthcare, but don't have the same kind of resources to be able to, 
go all the way through medical school to go to medical school or to take take on a you know an advanced practice kind of um, process. I think you know that sort of supply demand kind of alignment um, needs needs to be there. And I think what we what we certainly see across the board is you know people see healthcare as a huge opportunity from a financial perspective. And we've seen you know over the last five to ten years, and I know you're totally aware of this is a how much sort of venture capital money and all the rest of that stuff that has gone into healthcare. And I think that's a great thing. And it's, I think, aligning it with, with sort of where, where there, there needs to be sort of um, financial kind of, uh, uh, how do I, supports like around at medical education, mm. like around you know, ensuring that um, there's the sort of the breadth of oper- uh, access in communities like underserved communities or communities urban communities or rural communities, which believe it or not, have very different demographics, but have very similar issues, right? Mm-hmm. In terms right. of access. Um, and so I think that's part part of what taking a step back and taking a much more systemic kind of holistic view that's about it being right, not about any particular constituency mm-hmm. being kind of right, is I think one one step in the right direction in terms of getting to just a better healthier healthcare system which is kind of funny healthier healthcare hmm. i like that <laughs> i do too what difference do you hope to make personally yeah so um i'm one of those people who i like to clean up messes or i like to build stuff so i'm always going to be on the end of the spectrum when you sort of alluded to it earlier mm-hmm. that it's going to be part of kind of busting through the new but taking an old paradigm and shifting it on its head to make it kind of one step better or two steps better, five steps better. And so, um, and, and that a brings me joy, but it also helps me feel like I'm part of pushing that change. Um, and it's really like, once again, about getting to better. Right. And, um, and so personally, I, I feel very, very strongly about making sure that I'm, I work for and worth work with organizations that have an a lot we are aligned from a mission perspective. Um, and and how we do that might vary in different ways and that kind of thing. Um, but you know, the, the mission here, especially like where I'm at right now, village is really around get help supporting providers so that they can do what they do best, which is take care of people, right? And primary care people physicians really care about taking care of people or else they wouldn't be primary care doctors. Right. Um, and so how can, how can we support them in that, in that, in that role? And so um, continuing to do that um, and continuing to sort of be a champion for things like leveraging technology and really responding to um, actually fairly strongly about us thinking differently about how patients versus healthcare consumers, like, shifting that paradigm like are we service oriented do and like that's one of the things that's kind of lovely about this concept of primary care offices next to Walgreens like there's a service orientation that's underlying all of that that I think in general we just need to do better about in healthcare everybody has an experience whether it's in a hospital or a physician's office where they just felt like they were just they they as the patient weren't the important thing right yeah. the the, yeah. the system the doctor the insurance was more important than they were like that that's not right that's not where we should be going in healthcare so that's kind of my personal feeling and i and hope to continue to be able to work for organizations like village and um into the future where i can be part of that part of that change 
Well, Dominique, it's been a pleasure, and uh, you're doing great work. Uh, I'm I'm just as impressed with you now as I was seven or eight years ago when we first met. So, um, great great to great to chat again. How can our listeners yeah. get in touch with you if they want to learn more about Village or what you're up to in uh, in Michigan? So LinkedIn, I would say, is the best way. Um, certainly on my my personal LinkedIn page is, is definitely one. I actually also have a, a web page that is, has not gone away and probably will stay there for a little bit because I do do some speaking and other types of engagements, um, which is Morgan Solomon Consulting, um, dot com. And then um, if people are interested in learning more about Village MD, certainly Village's website, but then also the LinkedIn page, I would say they should follow folks, follow Village there. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much, Dominique, and keep up the great work. Thank you. I will continue to try and it was really, really cool to talk with you for a little bit.